Good day, everyone. This is year 2008, January 31, and this is the Ontolog invited speaker session again.、Uh, today we have、uh, Professor Dr. John Bateman from University of Bremen、uh, in Germany、uh, with us, and he is presenting a talk entitled "Ontology Structuring." Mechanisms and ontological modularity, ongoing research and targeted application, and this is work that is ongoing at their institution.、Uh, that includes、uh, Professor Bateman's work as well as Till Moseskowski, Oliver Kutz, and Joanna Hoyes. So、uh, before we start.、Uh, Maybe I'll、uh, take a moment to、uh, give a little uh, uh, a bit of information about our speaker.、Uh, John Bateman is professor of applied linguistics at the University of Bremen and researches in functional and computational linguistics,、uh, focusing particularly on multilingual and multimodal linguistic descriptions and computational instantiation of. Theories. He obtained his PhD in artificial intelligence from Edinburgh University in 1986, and worked subsequently in computational linguistics projects at Kyoto University,、uh, ISI at the University of Southern California, and the German National、uh, Research Center for Information Technolo- Technology. In Darmstadt, and also the Stirling University in Scotland, his current interest revolves around the relationship of linguistically motivated ontologies to other ontological realms, and the construction of computational dialogue systems for robot-human communications using such ontologies. He has published widely in all these areas, as well as authoring several introductory and survey articles on natural language generation and systemic functional linguistics. He has been working on linguistically motivated ontologies since 1989, and is currently the coordinator of the Bremen Ontology Research Group. So,、uh, without further ado. Uh, Professor uh, Bateman. Right. Thank you very much, Peter. I can see the shared environment bringing up the overheads now, so we'll get started as soon as I see them. So see that we don't run ahead. There we go. Trust everybody can see these. This is the very beginning, and as you can see from the slides, this is really a report from our research group.、Um, I will be. Starting us off and giving an overview of the kind of areas we've been looking at, and also the kind of approaches that we have been led to to deal with those areas and the particular problems. We'll see those in a moment.、Um, in the centre of the talk, taking up really a lot of the the content, the main new things that we're presenting will be Till Mosakowski and Oliver Kutz, who will、uh, be showing some of the. More formal mechanisms that we're developing to deal with our problems, and we believe with 
many others prob- other problems, others problems too, uh, when we get to uh, serious ontological engineering issues. So let's proceed right away with the next slide, slide number two. So we're going to be going through in this kind of order. I'll give the general orientation and our position on ontologies to begin with. This will set out certain design requirements which we consider absolutely essential now to make progress in ontology. This will lead into the formal framework within which we are working, which will be mostly done by Till Mosakowski. Then we'll go on to examples of ontological modularities and reuse. We'll define by then more precisely exactly what we mean by ontological modularities. And this will be being done both by Till and Oliver Kutz. Then we'll come into the conclusions. Uh, I will give the conclusions. Maybe Joanna. Joanna will say something in the conclusions. We'll see how it goes. Next slide, please. Slide number three. These are the research areas which we are currently investigating, where we are bringing in issues of ontology. Um, this is work within our collaborative research center, and we're looking at issues of mobility support, intelligent mobility support, which is going to involve interaction between devices and their users, involving spatially embedded tasks, so getting around, navigating, exploring, doing route planning, and interacting between devices and diverse user groups. That's user groups, users who have very different needs and requirements. So there we need both general solutions and also customizable solutions that can uh, lead us or allow us to interact with uh, different users according to their own needs. This leads into disability and age, since uh, we know that... uh, Um, age and disabilities affect the interaction requirements quite a bit. Next slide, please. So the problems that we really focus around, and this moves us a little bit nearer to the ontological issues which we're bringing in here, are as listed on the slide. Spatial assistance systems, route planning and navigation, real-world environments involving common-sense entities. I mean by that things like desks and telephones and chairs, just regular, everyday, common-sense things which we might bump into. Also interfacing with geographic information more generally because of the interaction of the relationship we have with space and spatial information. We also interface with language technology since our systems are meant to be able to interact with their users in several modalities, but I'm really only going to be talking about the language aspect. Interfacing with visual presentations, maps, interfacing with robotic sensor data, so if our systems are mobile, embedded in the world, then they are perceiving the world in particular ways. And bringing this all together in interaction, interaction which is natural and we hope supportive of of better use of, uh, of the systems we're developing. Slide number five. Where we start moving into the need for ontology here is the fact that when we deal with these kind of issues, we have very many different kinds of knowledge. And we need to get these different kinds of knowledge into our systems in order to be able to interact with people in a way which allows device, system, 
and their users to cooperate in reaching solutions. We don't want a situation where the device is constraining and only uh, allows the users to do what the device wants uh, them to do. We need to get this cooperative uh, support into the kind of devices we want. Next slide. We can see, or just give a suggestion of some of the things which this might involve with this overhead here, which depicts a rather simple setup, but one which we are uh, have been working with for a while. Imagine that there is a person somewhere in this office space. This is one um, uh, level from one of our buildings, and that device is somewhere else, or another device is somewhere else, and he asks one of the uh, interactants, wants to know where the other one is. Well, where are you? Um, we can see when we consider how we would answer that question, that very many different kinds of information need to be brought to bear. The map which we see in the background is one of the artificially, uh, an automatically generated um, views of the space on that floor. And it uses certain abstractions which are not usually the kind of abstractions which people would be, would find useful in order to answer a question like this. You could describe this in terms of arcs and edges and various coordinates or whatever. But normally, we want something much simpler. We want something like, well, you go down the end of the corridor and you turn right, and then you go around a bit, and there I am. Um, in order to find that kind of answer, support that kind of interaction, we, of course, need to be able to interface between very different kinds of knowledge. The low-level level, uh, sensory data, which the, say, robotic devices have recorded in order to map out this floor, up to the kind of more natural common sense entities that we find being used in natural interaction. If we extend that a little bit, extend that to maybe not inside the same building, but going from one building to another, one city to another, still answering the same kind of questions, navigation, spatial assistance tasks, we find rather more information being necessary to be brought in. And we see some of these on the next slide. Sources of relevant knowledge that we are actively considering for location-based services involve geographic information systems, common sense objects and activities, as I've just mentioned, spatial awareness and understanding what is the spatial situation what, that one is in, how does natural language create these or recreate or reconstruct these spatial situations, the robotic perception that we saw in the, the map underlying the previous, uh, on the previous overhead, and all of this then gets multiplied by the things running down the left-hand side of the overhead. User knowledge. We don't want to tell users something which they already know, uh, if there's any, unless there's a good reason to. So we have to adapt all of the information that we are giving with respect to the knowledge that users have, and also with respect to user abilities or disabilities. And this can also be dependent on time, change over time. The, the disability may be something like you happen to have a small handheld cell phone or something with a small screen. Uh, then you are temporarily uh, at a, a disadvantage with respect to somebody looking at something on a big screen. Those kind of issues, as well as uh, what we uh, often might understand with disabilities. All of these multiplied together 
to give a very complex information space with very different kinds of information. So on the next slide, slide number eight, we can see or restate the problem that we have, that we're starting with. We need to get these diverse areas of expertise to talk to each other. And this is a serious, complicated issue because the different areas of knowledge, different areas of expertise come from different communities, they reflect, reflect different interests, and they employ different representations. And there are, in general, and often very good reasons for these different representations. They reflect particular needs of particular user communities and user requirements. So the kinds of knowledge that we end up having to deal with by systems of these kinds are very different. We need to be able to respond to this rather than try to uh, have a, a steamroller principle where we get everything into the, exactly the same form. So the next slide shows the general idea that I expect many of us would share and why we are here at all when we're talking about ontologies. We adopt the idea that providing channels into ontologies provides access to detailed contextual world knowledge that does not then have to be worked out again. So we have basic issues of reuse and interoperability, and this is our starting point for wanting to use ontologies. However, on the next slide, our approach, our response to the situation where we have very many different sources of relevant knowledge and rather different communities and styles of representation, styles of, of reasoning that one may want to do with this information, our response to this is not to, as I said, put everything in a similar framework, but to respect these differences and to say that there are many different perspectives on reality. And that means we have many ontologies. So our basic starting point and our essential design decision in order to make progress here is that we are dealing with ontologically diverse characterizations of the world. So here as an example, we may have some event we may characterize this in different kinds of spatial terms, in, say, ontologies of events as well, maybe a separate ontology of time. We respect the fact that each of these gives us a valid view on reality. So there are many distinct ontologies. As a brief example of the direction that this might go into, I have on the next slide a potential communication problem. So this is a, a, an old example that leads us into some of the uh, concrete examples that we'll see later, more formally. Imagine we have uh, the two communities here. The question is, when is a road not a road? First community, we may have transit system designers, and this, uh, such a community may have representations which involve roads, highways, and these can be modeled as connections between destinations, say cities, towns. So we have a graph-like representation. The destinations may be points on the graph, and the roads and highways are arcs connecting the nodes. We may also have a completely distinct community, maybe an environment or wildlife department, concerned with maintaining the environment and the wildlife. And there they will have very different, potentially uh, different abstractions, which are useful. For example, species may have habitats, 
habitats may have divisions which separate them or they may overlap and these correspond to various regions. Now, we see this graphically on the next slide. So on the left-hand side, we have the view of the transit system, and in the boxes on the lower part of the diagram, we have the concrete instantial information that we may be describing. So here we have Highway 456, I don't know, if there's a Highway 456 or where it might be. Um, and there's a city A and there's a city B, which this highway connects. We can describe this for many pur purposes, very accurately and suitably, with respect to a graph ontology, where we have a direct map of the highway going to the line connecting these and the cities go to the nodes. This is useful in that it abstracts away from many details, which for certain purposes, perhaps navigation, perhaps route planning, may not be necessary. So the fact that the highway may have lots of wiggles in it may not be, for a particular purpose, necessary. On the right-hand side, we have the characterization from the wildlife situation. There below, we may have, very simplified of course, the habitat of a species, some species A. We wouldn't really want to characterize this generally as relating to a graph ontology, where the node, where the connecting point. We might well characterize it as a region, and there we would need to have a region ontology, and we'll be talking about regions which overlap, touch each other, are separate from each other, the usual kind of things one has with regions. Now, there we have a problem of interoperability because the abstractions involved are very different for the two but they may usefully want to talk to each other, or they may need to talk to each other, but perhaps haven't realized it yet. For example, when the planning system or the planning uh, group for the transit system decides to build a new road, and perhaps it goes right through the middle of one of the habitats. And we can see this characterized in the next slide. Imagine now that Highway 456, in fact, it's planned and it goes right through the middle of this habitat of this species A. Now, this might be a bad idea. Maybe this will have some consequences. So, it would be good if the two groups or the two information systems could communicate with each other. And for that, we need to know that a, a road, which is characterized as a link between nodes in a graph ontology, can also be characterized as a boundary which is created when two regions overlap or touch each other, or alternatively, that a line connecting two links may serve the, the function or have the effect that in the region ontology, one region is divided into two. But if we can build a way of relating the categories and abstractions in the one ontology with those in the other, then we have a way of establishing uh, interoperability of communication between these very differently structured views of the world. So we have two different realities, but often it is useful and it is a definite added extra if the groups can communicate. We don't want to say from the outset, well, you can only communicate if you both agree from the beginning that you'll use a common ontology. So you have to give up your graph ontology on one side and give up your region ontology on the other side and agree to talk with each other. We want to be able to do this in a rather more flexible, on-demand fashion so that 
the information can be maintained in the two communities using the terms and the abstractions which they have developed because we assume often that they will have good reasons for those abstractions. And we don't want to uh, then say, well, no, uh, if you want to talk to somebody else, you have to change that. So bringing these two together leads us to our methodological starting point, which is on the next slide. A methodological starting point is that there is no sense in which a simple merging of the ontologies involved in any application is a sensible strategy to follow. So we don't want to take individual ontologies, say they all have to fit together in a single mold. How do we achieve that? So we see the starting outline of this on the next slide. So the solution that we are pursuing in order to achieve a high degree of interoperability between diverse knowledge-rich systems is to start with the ontological engineering approach, taking in knowledge of the human world and the other areas which are listed here on the slide as we've seen before, to take each of them as a ontological domain or maybe an ontological domain itself consists, consisting of, of many subdomains and to consider the task of relating them we see this graphed out on the next slide. So we want ontological diversity, and we want to achieve this formally by being able to define inter-ontology mappings. And we'll say in the next part of the talk exactly what kinds of inter-ontology mappings we are developing and looking at. And this will enable us to provide of any given description a set of further ontological characterizations which are related to each other but are not then required to be merged together into a single ontological view. We also, as we'll see later, are taking the heterogeneous nature of this ontological diversity very seriously in that it is not only concerned with the information which is being presented. It's not only the case that we have different information. It's also not only the case that we have different abstractions, different organizations of information there in the ontologies, we may even have different ways of expressing that information. That is, that particular ones of these boxes here we have may draw on particular kinds of representation, particular kinds of logics, and others may draw from different logics, different kinds of representations. Some may require a very complex representation, perhaps uh, full first-order logic or more, and others may require very simple representations. Others may be somewhere in the middle. For example, we might have something in a, 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 a version of a description logic. And we want to be able to respect the necessary requirements of each of these domains and allow this heterogeneity to apply across not only the what is represented, but also how it's represented and what logical system is used to express that information. In the examples that we'll see later, we'll see this uh, spelled out in more formal detail. So, in summary then, if we go to the next slide, just going back to our example, there are many different perspectives and views on particular things. For example, if we take a lake, 
whatever lake maybe, we could see it as a link in a transport network if there are ferries. We can see it as a geographical region. We can see it as sources of pure water, as a recreational area, as an obstacle. All of these draw from different ontologies. Next slide. Now, building these kind of connections between different ontologies, different um, characterizations of the world can really only work if there is sufficient content to get hold of. That is, this isn't a relationship between individual terms in any particular characterization, but it's really a deeper relationship. It's a semantic relationship. It's a relationship between theories. So we can consider each of these characterizations of a particular perspective on the world as a theory of the world. And the theory, we mean with theory here, uh, theory in quite a, a specific formal sense. So we mean the real theoretical, or so, rather formal view of what a theory is in terms of a formal system. And for this we need deep ontologies, axiomatized ontologies. So on the next slide, we position ourselves here in that we are at the bottom of this slide. We are looking at um, what is here characterized as heavy ontologies. We see that in order to define contentful mappings between different ontological areas, we need rich axiomatization, we need formal principles, and we need well-defined design criteria to make these ontologies work. We will be looking at, or we have been looking at and continue to looking at, how to go between these two. Clearly, if we have an ontological area which is only requiring a rather limited expressivity, then we move towards the light ontology area. But we want to be able to move freely between these as individual applications and requirements demand, rather than already fixing ourselves beforehand in one of these areas. So our ontological starting point on the next slide, which is essentially uh, borrowed from Leo Oberst, we have this from the ontolog uh, email lists. We have this uh, characterization of the spectrum of ontology applications. And we are on the upper right. I don't know what happens if we click on this side, if we get the animation or we don't. We do. There it is. So we're starting up there with the logical theory view of what an ontology is. So all of our ontologies and our ontological domains are considered as logical theories. And we use this as a starting point also for moving to the left towards um, applications and characterizations which do not demand so much expressivity. But all of these are considered as logical theories of greater or lesser expressivity. So next slide, please. So theories. We all have theories, theories of the world, theories of how buildings are, theories of the best way to get from A to B, theories of how to persuade your boss for a raise. Um, and to characterize these different theories, we are starting from the position that we need axiomized ontologies here, A ontologies, which set out such theories in an explicit specification. So, on the next slide, this is what we consider to be absolutely essential for getting these interoperability issues really on a firm foundation. Unless you can reason with the axioms in your ontology, then you can't really say very much at all. You certainly can't build very sophisticated mappings. So, there we need logic in order to treat these things as theories and be able to do something with them. However, we need to go then a step further 
unless you can chunk your axioms, unless you can start building them into structured representations, then your ability to build theories is going to be severely limited as well. There's a limit to how well we can maintain and reason about and think about um, uh, sequences of uh, rather long collections or sets of, uh, of unstructured axioms. Next step, unless you can then reuse parts of these chunks, unless you can parameterize, reuse your theories, this is also what we consider to be very problematic. This gets in the way of reusability. Therefore, as we'll see, we also consider it necessary that we have structured logic support, not just building theories, but also the ability to create structured specifications. We'll see that concretely uh, in a moment. When we can do all that, then we can start stating into theory mappings. We can start defining these as theory morphisms and other kinds of relationships in a serious way, which will then we believe take us much further in addressing the kind of interoperability or communication problems that we're facing. So the next slide, which gives us several of the ingredients that we are using in our current work environment. We won't go into uh, many of these or the existing ontologies in any particular detail. We might mention them as we go through. We've been starting with work on, on ontology. Uh, from, uh, sorry Claudio, I mistyped your name, uh, from, uh, from the, the group in, in Trento. We have uh, also the various basic formal ontology and a linguistic ontology that I've been working on for a while. All of these we are specifying in using the kind of tools that are given in the second main bullet point. These tools and these specification languages are going to be the main chunk, the main content of the talk that we're going to be moving on to in a, to a second. So the next slide. Our ontology construction is then going to group axioms into logically appropriate theories. These theories may be extended in various formal ways we'll see in a moment in order to achieve reuse. And then we will relate different specifications by several different mechanisms. We'll see this in more detail. Only when we can achieve this kind of reuse can the complexity of distinct axiomatized ontologies really be harnessed when you really start getting something out of it. So the next slide, which I'll go over just quite quickly, and we can refer back to this uh, later. Um, we believe this is simplifying the ontology's life. We're making sure that components come together and can be reused. We're making sure that unnecessary detail is hidden when we can, and it allows us to start finding common subsets, common modules, which can be reused, as has been attempted in uh, some approaches to ontology up to now. Now we can see in a moment how we uh, follow through on this and, and formally support it. Next slide. So we consider this to be absolutely essential because when we start representing our knowledge, we need, there are a lot of pieces to put back together. So unless we can start relating these things in a, in a well-specified fashion, we have a lot of difficulties. And I'll just give to, to round off this, this beginning start of, the, of this first third or this first portion of the talk, very brief informal examples which just characterize that. So on the next slide, 
Imagine the following simple, relatively simple instruction, which we might have for our navigation system, driving along the road to Bremen on the right is a church. If we consider the semantic interpretations which go into that and how we would represent the semantics, we see at least four rather different theories of the world being put together. These are on the next slide. We have driving along, which gives us an oriented path. It doesn't commit to anything more than an oriented path, so if we put more in, we're over-committing. So a, com uh, a design feature of our semantics is that each part only commits to as much semantics as it needs to. The road to Bremen, that commits to a navigation network, so we need a different ontology, an ontology of what we describe as root graphs. On the right relies on a representation which divides the world into half planes, left and right. This is, again, separate from the root graphs and separate from oriented paths. And is a church this defines some physical object occupying a region. So we have here four different ontological areas, and we want to be able to relate them without smashing them together into a single representation. Because if we put them together, then we end up with the worst of all possible worlds and a representation or a characterization which can become computationally extremely unpleasant. So we would require very high expressivity to get it all together and this then makes working with such representations very difficult. Here we try and maintain simple areas or simpler areas and there we can apply just the necessary computational power to reason within domains without uh, uh, suffering from when we put them all together. On the next overhead, and this is where we go in, um, I show to what extent this really goes. And I'm not going to go through these in any length. One can go through and look at the overheads uh, at a later time, or if you're not listening to this in real time, you can take your time going through them. Each of these particular parts of the instructions involves very many different theories of the world. And if we click again, if we see what happens, there we have particular spatial information. And now we can also go through and list all the theories which we are appealing to here. This should happen with a further click. So on the right-hand side, we have separate theories. Theories of orientation, theories of landmarks, theory of different kinds of landmarks, theory of destinations, theories of shapes. Our commitment or our belief there is in order to deal with this kind of diversity, we need distinct theories which we then bring into relationships rather than putting it all together into a single rather unmanageable block. So to conclude this first part, we'll see in the next one, two, three, four slides just a summary of, of what's going on here. Because these kind of this kind of requirement has been talked about for a long time. Each of the contributions to meaning that we have, it's each of the kinds of characterizations that we are dealing with is considered to draw on a range of more or less related theories of the world. Axiomatized ontologies set such theories out in an explicit specification and on the next slide we see an old picture from John Sower in an old email discussion from a parallel discussion group uh, where we have the notion of ontologies and on the next slide we see the suggestion of organizing these into a lattice of sub-ontologies. So here we have the old notion which Tom Sowell has been talking about for a while, a lattice of ontologies, where we characterize what different ontologies share. So we have reuse 
of particular components. And on the next slide, we just focus in on the reuse parts here. And on the next slide, or the next click, we have a little additional piece of text which will come in. Oh, no, it doesn't. It didn't come in. I'm sorry. There it is. Thank you. On the left-hand side, we ask the questions, what kind of modules are these which are being related? What is the nature of the relationships that can hold between them? What kind of formal and logical relationships does this involve? And how does this relate to the different communities of theories of the world that we've been seeing so far in examples? So what we want to do is then characterize this mostly informal notion of what a lattice of ontologies might offer in precise formal terms and characterize this in a way making use of particular tools and particular languages which we have been working with in Raymond for some time. And I think this is where we go over to the next slide which is my lead into I think Till's part. Our general approach is going to be to introduce how a particular formal framework which we We'll describe here as castle, how this is used for first expressing ontologies and for describing how they're related and giving us some examples. So here I will hand over to Tim. Okay, uh, so I will continue. I'm Till Mosakowski, also from Bremen. Um, John just mentioned the language castle. Actually, uh, this is spelled out common algebraic specification language. Uh, it is a language that has been developed in the uh, formal software development community, um, but we have found out that uh, some of the ideas and techniques used uh, there are very well um, and very uh, important applicable uh, for the world of ontologies as well. Uh, so Castle is kind of standard. It has uh, been developed by an open and uh, voluntarily uh, founded uh, initiative called Coffee, like a common framework initiative, uh, yeah, since more than a decade now. Um, and the results of this standardization effort um, are now available in the lecture notes and computer science series. Uh, there's a user manual, a reference manual. And Till, Till, Till. Yeah. Maybe this is this is on the next slide. Maybe you could tell Peter to advance the slide. Ah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Slide 36. Yeah, I I I uh, didn't get this. Yeah, sorry. So please advance to slide 36. Um, so Castle has been approved by this uh, IFIB working group. So IFIB is in a very uh, famous uh, computer science organization worldwide. Um, and what is important, since uh, John mentioned the, this ontological diversity, is that we have various extensions and sub-languages, uh, including higher-order logic, motor logic, and description logic. Um, so uh, this is also a central aspect of Castle that the, the underlying can even be... Uh, used uh, with multiple underlying logics in parallel. And this essentially uh, is uh, the answer uh, or in answer to this uh, need for ontological diversity. Uh, so um, Castle supports uh, at the structured level um, 
various mechanisms for, for better structuring of logical theories. Please uh, move on to the next slide, 37. Uh, so we have uh, basic theories, which are just symbols and axioms. We can extend uh, theories, we can unite them, we can rename parts of them. And uh, what John already has mentioned, uh, there is a notion of parameterization, which also will show up in the examples. You, uh, with the keyword spec, you declare a specification called spec1 here, and this has a formal parameter spec2, which may vary. Um, and, and may, for example, involve different concepts, and, and the specification spec then is the body uh, where the common part is uh, mentioned. Uh, another important uh, construct that has been mentioned by uh, John is the relation of different logical theories, say by theory morphisms or interpretations of theories, and this is in Castle written as a view so you have the keyword view, then the name of the view, then the source specification, then the two and the target specification, and then the symbol mapping saying which symbols of the source are mapped to which symbols of the target. And basically the semantics is that you really have an interpretation of theories or vice versa that each model of the target, spec 2, is also a model of the source. Um, next slide, please. Uh, 38. Here you have an example of a basic specification, so, so just some concepts like service and room are declared here in the binary predicate located at, and you have one axiom saying that each uh, service has some room where it is located at. Um, so this is just the basic building block of these structuring uh, mechanisms. Next slide, please, 39. Here you have an example of uh, a named specification. So you declare a new named specification uh, called distance else and, and, and imports a previously declared named specification rot for rational numbers. And then you have the then keyword that means now that the rational numbers are extended and you have some, some space of elements here and some distance operation with some axioms uh, that are typical for a metric. That's not important here. Important is that you really can name specifications and extend them. Uh, next slide, please. Slide 40. And here is an example of a view. Uh, we will have a more uh, ontological example of this soon. Um, but here we have some um, example for mathematics. Um, Look at the left-hand side, there you have a specification of natural numbers. Again, I won't go to in the details. You have zero and successor and a less than predicate recursively defined. On the right-hand side, you have a specification of partial orders. That's basically an abstract mathematical concept saying that you just have a binary relation that is reflexive, transitive, and antisymmetric. And now the view states that actually the naturals are a partial order. And this is, in a sense, uh, written the other way around. So the view goes from, from partial order to not. And uh, the body of the view is just a renaming. You rename the sort LM to not. And this means that 
the partial order axioms, when translated, so when you replace the alum uh, by the nut, uh, then they, these translated partial order axioms actually hold, so are logical consequences of the specification of natural numbers. Next slide, please, 41. Uh, now coming to parametrized theories. Uh, so we have actually specified the uh, ontology Dolce, uh, also in Castle. Uh, and thereby I found that we could uh, write various parts uh, far more succinctly than uh, the Dolce people had done previously. Uh, so here you see a specification of primitives uh, where you have source for perdurance, for endurance, for time intervals, temporal locations, and so on. So you basically have a hierarchy of different concepts. And in Dolce, you have, for uh, a number of concepts, you have the same parthood axioms. So you have a theory of general parthood, um, which is parameterized here by sort S. Sort here could be understood as concept. So you have a concept S, and you have a binary uh, parthood relation on it, and this is also a partial order. But it's more than that. You can extend uh, the parthood by um, meroiology. Uh, say you have proper part, you have overlap, you have atomic uh, parts, and so on. And this can be axiomatized, as you see on the slide. And now, if you move to the next slide, number 42, you can see uh, the meroiology of Dolce is just... Uh, assembled by uh, taking the primitives and then instantiating this specification of general meteorology three times. Uh, one uh, for the sort T, which is for time intervals, one for the sort F, which is uh, space regions, and one for the sort PD, which is uh, perdurance. So that means that on these three different concepts, you inherit the same meteorology axioms, as well as, if you have looked at the previous slide, there are also, also some theorems, so some, some kind of proof obligations. You also inherit these, and, and also if you later on prove some facts about general meteorologies, then these are inherited by all these specific instances. So here you can see that parameterized theories cannot only uh, save a lot of writing time and space, but also in terms of um, examining and proving properties of ontologies, they can save much time. Uh, so this also has to be supported with tools to be effective. So let's move to the next slide. Um, so the heterogeneous tool set that we have uh, developed in Bremen and also in cooperation with other sites is the central analysis and proof tool uh, for CASEL. And you can see in the middle of this slide here that this is centered around a logic graph where you not only have CASEL, which is kind of first-order logic, you also have uh, things like HESCASEL and Isabel, which are higher-order logics, but you also have modal logic and you have uh, the DL things there, all DL is also mentioned there, 
so description logics, and you also can um, consider to plug in completely different logics. Uh, I should mention common logic, so uh, we also have thought of uh, integrating common logic here. There's nothing uh, which hinders us from that except uh, our lack of resources currently, but uh, I think at, at some stage uh, we will do this. So the aspect, uh, the essential aspect here is the heterogeneous structuring, so that, as John said, we have different ontological information in, in different domains and formulated in different formalisms, uh, and the essential thing is that we have kind of heterogeneous structuring language that allows us to relate all these different information uh, by uh, translating them uh, by our kind of morphisms that are here shown in this diagram, morphisms between the formalisms, so that we really have an integration that is based on a formal and solid uh, grounded semantics. And uh, on the left-hand side, you see that each of these formalisms comes with some tools that allow you to, to parse and analyze your, your specification text and that you also uh, can use theorem provers or, or you can find models. Um, it's also important to prove your uh, ontologies to be consistent. Um, on a formalism by formalism basis, and on the right-hand side, you then see that hats you puts all this together to a heterogeneous environment where you have really heterogeneous text where you can put together specifications or logical theories written in different formalisms. You can put them together uh, and they are analyzed by calling the these formalism specific tools of the left hand side and then you have a general management of uh, proofs uh, that really uh, ensure uh, that your proof obligations that you may have, for example, from your views, from your interpretations of theories, are actually uh, proved by a, a prover and that you don't have forgotten anything. So we will see an example of this heterogeneous specification later on when Oliver uh, presents his part, and I now hand over to Oliver. We should be on slide 44 now, please. Okay. Uh, could you speak up a little bit, please? Okay, I try. Uh, slide 44? Yes, thank you. So it should be clear from the talk so far, um, the notion of an ontological module can have a, a variety of meanings. And we here explicitly distinguish four different kinds of modules. Uh, first, uh, the concept of module based on conservativity. This essentially encodes the notion of logical independence. So if an ontology T2 is a conservative extension of T1, then T1 basically says everything about the vocabulary of T1. Or uh, put another way, T2 does not add anything substantially new. A typical example for that is a definitional extension when new vocabulary is added with an explicit definition. And next, ontologies can consist of modules, possibly written in different logical languages that have been integrated using a so-called modular language. 
Uh, examples for such formalisms are distributed description logics, often called DDLs, and e-connections. Such integrations typically involve a non-trivial link theory, connecting the modules, generating a degree of interaction rather than conservativity. Thirdly, um, when we combine modules through interfaces that are mostly syntax-driven, we speak of alignments. But we use this term in a more general sense than just aligning vocabulary of different ontologies in the sense of identifying terms or keeping them apart. Uh, we also include things like language extensions, uh, theory extensions, and so on. Uh, finally, in the most general sense, parts of the theory can be considered a module for reasons of traditional elegance uh, and so on. In this case, the general structuring techniques that uh, Till just discussed uh, to combine and reuse such modules become essential. Uh, the boundaries between these notions are not necessarily sharp, but uh, in the following we will describe scenarios that relate to all of these concepts of modularity. And an essential technical ingredient here is the notion of a theory morphism. Uh, next slide, please. So in the following examples, we use uh, diagrams to represent alignments or connections of modules uh, of various shapes. Ontology modules are nodes in a diagram and are connected along interface nodes. Alignment mappings are assumed to be given, for instance, identifying certain terms in different ontologies. However, the problem of finding such mappings, uh, for instance, by using statistical techniques or linguistic techniques, uh, is not a concern today. The notion of co-limit of a diagram can be used to obtain a general, an overall integration uh, of such diagrams and respects uh, the given interfaces. Moreover, composition of alignments can be understood as the composition of such diagrams, and in particular, definitional extensions in a diagram introduce new defined vocabulary, but uh, do not real, add real substance. Next slide, please. Uh, Oliver, could you speak up a little bit louder? Louder. Uh, okay, it's the phone. I, <laughs> I try. Thank you. So, um, this slide shows the different kinds of arrows that we use to represent various kinds of connections between modules. So, the first three arrows concern structuring mechanisms. The black arrow uh, denotes an import structure, similar to what imports in LDL would do. That is, the importing ontology contains the imported ontology completely, possibly along a translation of its vocabulary into a new logical formalism. A dash black arrow denotes an import structure that is generally uh, that is generated automatically. For instance, um, automatically computed co-limits that we will see later on in examples. The blue arrows uh, denote definitional or conservative extensions. And uh, the next two arrows uh, denote postulating links. The first one, the dotted red arrows, denote proof obligations, for instance, an interpretation of one theory into another. Such an interpretation demands that all axioms of the former can be proved in the latter, possibly along a translation. Finally, the green arrows denote uh, proof obligations that have been proven already. Next slide, please. So let us begin with a rather simple example, the so-called uh, V-alignment. You find the V-shape by observing the, sh uh, the shape given by the green arrows. These alignments have been uh, introduced originally in a paper by Zimmermann and uh, colleagues. 
Um, in a typical alignment problem, certain distinct terms from different ontologies need to be identified, whilst other terms that happen to have the same name but different meanings in the ontology should be kept distinct. So this is realized here through the interface node Sigma, which contains a uh, woman and person. And uh, the green arrows map woman to woman in T1 and T2 and person to person in T1 and human in T2. So in the ontology that can be obtained from this V-shaped diagram automatically as a co-limit, person and human should be identified with a new concept called human being. However, the term bank, which appears in both ontologies, it does not appear in this interface, and so uh, two new terms, river bank and financial bank, representing these distinct meanings of bank in these two ontologies, uh, are generated in the uh, ontology T at the top. Um, note that this, this simple kind of alignment does not allow to introduce new simple subclass assertions, such as stating that woman is a subclass of person. Uh, this can be done in a different kind of alignment that we see on the next slide. 48, please. So this is a alignment called uh, W alignment. Here we have, again, two ontologies, T1 and T2. This time, however, we have two uh, interface nodes, sigma1 and sigma2, and they're both connected to a so-called bridge ontology B, which is in the middle. So this new bridge ontology can now contain new subsumptions, such as woman is a subclass of person. Um, weak points of this kind of alignment is that they don't compose well and that this bridge ontology B can be rather arbitrary. Um, if we go to the next slide, 49, we see a variation of this that uh, is uh, slightly better and combines features of the V and W alignments. Um, it's called M alignment because we find the shape of an M in there. Uh, this time again we have just one interface node, sigma, as in the V alignment. Uh, moreover, now we can introduce uh, definitional extensions of T1 and T2 denoted by the blue arrows. These are conservative arrows. And uh, they allow us to introduce new vocabulary and add a new inclusion axioms, as we can see on the left-hand side. Um, uh, as opposed to the W alignments that we've seen on the last slide, these uh, alignments compose quite well. Now, uh, can we go to the next slide, please, 50? Slide 50, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, we, uh, I discuss a slightly more concrete example, uh, which is adopted from a paper by Schorlemmer and Karl Fuglu. Uh, we, we assume we have knowledge about bibliographies uh, represented in two different formalisms that we want to integrate. The first is a description logic, and the other is a relational schema. So uh, Schorlem and Kalfuklu have discussed the so-called lambda alignment, where the two representations are mapped into a common reference ontology, which is written in first-order logic. Uh, here we remodel this example as an heterogeneous alignment. Um, on this slide, we see a bibliographical ontology uh, written in a description logic. Uh, it's just called DL in the uh, specification, written in red, uh, where, for instance, class researcher, researcher researchers uh, supposed to have a name, uh, with relations has article, has journal, uh, where the latter is the inverse of the former. Um, 
we state that instances of the class article need to have an author and a title and so on. Um, so next slide, please. We can um, represent similar information uh, in the logic of relational schemas. So here we uh, switch to the logic of relational schemas, again written in red, uh, which is quite an inexpressive logic compared to description logics. However, we can state essentially the same facts here. In the first four lines, uh, we specify, uh, we define tables. For instance, the person, ta uh, person table contains names identified by keys and so on. Uh, the author of uh, is a many, many relation relating persons with the papers they've written. And moreover, uh, the links specify integrity conditions. For example, that a person entry in the author of the table has associated with it a person ID and so on. Uh, now we want to integrate these two representations uh, in, in one formalism. Next slide, please. So this is done by by a view um, that uh, Till has uh, introduced a bit earlier. So for this we switch to the logic castle, which is essentially a first order logic. And the view specifies that we can interpret the relational schema representation uh, in an extended DL format. So what we do is we translate the DL representation into castle and conservatively extend it by adding definitions of terms basically that appear in the database representation. So essentially we define the database tables from the information given in the DL representation. Um, again, the structure of this example is best understood um, when repre represented as a diagram, which is on the next slide. Slide 53. So here we see that uh, BBLUDL, the DL representation, is extended conservatively by definitions into a castle specification. X, uh, X BBLUDL, this gives us uh, the blue arrow. And the dotted red arrow asserts that the BBLURS specification cannot be proven in the castle first order representation using these new definitions. Uh, this is an example of a heterogeneous mapping since three different logical formalisms are involved. Um, next, let, let us move to a different kind of integration, namely one based on modular languages on the next slide, slide 54. So probably the most well-known modular languages are e-connections and distributed description logics. Um, the main feature of these languages uh, are as follows. They assume a number of ontologies are given and then add link relations between their domains. And over these link relations, a link language is used to add bridge axioms relating the ontologies and give interaction. The main focus uh, of these link languages is to control the interaction and to preserve certain positive properties such as uh, the decidability of the component formalisms. Uh, E-connections were originally perceived as a combination technique for, for logics in general, for a large class of logics, and not just ontology languages, so we can also use them for connecting, for instance, space, spatial logics with ontologies. Uh, in the picture, uh, the picture shows the main intuition. Two formalisms are used to represent knowledge about distinct domains that are related. Uh, the link relation, called E in the picture, is used to relate elements from one domain with elements from the other. Um, then operators over these link relations can 
can be used to axiomatize various interconnections. Um, the operators shown um, on the page at the bottom uh, are basically DL-like existential restrictions. For instance, the first one uh, says, given a concept C from domain 2, the operator E1C creates all points in domain 1 that are connected to something in C along the relation E. So to make this a bit uh, more clear, we look at a concrete example on the next slide, 55. So here we are given two ontologies. The first one, T1, uh, contains knowledge about the functionality of objects found in buildings. It asserts that windows are objects that offer views and that have a state that is either open or closed. The other ontology, T2, also contains knowledge about buildings but from an engineering point of view. It talks about materials and defines a window as something that is glass and has the feature of being bulletproof. So clearly there's a systematic relationship between these two views, but it's not a relationship of subsumption or of identification of symbols, as in the simple alignment problems. Rather, it's, uh, we, we want to introduce a link relation consists of that relates objects from the functionality uh, ontology with materials from the engineering ontology. The last two axioms now impose interaction and can be read as follows. If I'm a window in T1, then I consist of materials that are transparent. And secondly, if I'm a window in T2, then I correspond to objects that are also windows in T1 and additionally provide security to inhabitants. This basically makes the windows in T2 a special subclass of the windows in T1 and also allows for the possibility of windows in T1 made from other materials uh, than glass, such as plastic, for instance. Uh, again, this kind of integration can be analyzed in the shape of a diagram, which we find on the next slide. So this diagram shows that the integration via e-connections is essentially a special case of an extended M-alignment. Um, again, we assume we start with two ontologies, T1 and T2. We conservatively turn these into sorted variants T1MS and T2MS in order to keep the vocabularies disjoint. And this is shown by the empty interface node connected with the green arrows that shows that uh, no vocabulary is identified. Uh, next, we obtain the disjoint union of these two ontologies. And at that point, the two ontologies sit side by side without any interaction. Finally, we can extend the language by adding these link relations and uh, interaction axioms using, using these link relations and obtain a new connection. And this is typically not, not a conservative operation, but it's uh, true new information, as in the example on the last slide. Um, if we go to the next slide, we summarize these, this part of the talk. Um, we have seen that various relationships between modules can be represented as diagrams of certain shapes. These shapes of diagrams and the specific mappings involved can encode a rich family of alignments and integration scenarios using modules. Support for such, uh, for such structured relationship adds considerable to the ontologist's toolkit, so we hope. And uh, we're seeing now one more example, I believe, by Joanna on the next slide. Should I do this with Joanna? I think this is presented by Joanna, yes. 
Well, I'll continue it for Joanna is not there. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. then come on, hold on. Okay, fine. Can I go on? Yeah, I don't mind, sorry, I had... Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, I'll go on then. So the final example, which will bring it to a close now, uh, brings us back a full circle right to the beginning where we were talking about spatial information. The mechanisms we've seen so far are very general. They all apply to any ontological specifications as, as theories. So to finish, um, we'll bring it right back to some of the examples we had right at the beginning on the next slide. Where we have on the left-hand side some of the work we've been doing in linguistic semantics, linguistic ontology, where this is mostly specified within a description logic, and we relate this to particular interpretations of space represented as spatial calculi of various kinds. There are very many spatial calculi, and we are picking specifically for particular tasks. The reason, one of the reasons for doing this is that we can have particular uh, reasoning and inferencing systems such as constraint propagation, which work very efficiently for the spatial calculi, and so we don't want to lose that ability. So on the next slide, we see one concrete alignment, which we can see as an extension of the, of the E connection, or the extended M alignment. On the next slide, number, whatever it is. Thank you. So on the left-hand side, we have just some categories drawn from the linguistic ontology, different kinds of directionalities, which are expressed linguistically, and on the right-hand side, we have a representation of orientation in terms of the double-cross calculus with eight relations. If we, consider move, uh, if we consider standing in one position and saying left and ask what does that mean, then it corresponds to a uh, disjunction of three different orientations from the um, double-cross calculus here. We either a little bit in front left, a little bit on the left, also exactly on the left, and then a little bit behind on the left. So we have a particular alignment in the context of one standing still. On the next slide, we see that this changes if we are moving. If we are moving and say, turn left, let's go left, this doesn't generally mean that we will suddenly want to double back on ourselves and go backwards. So we have then a different alignment. But again, we have the general principle that we have a heterogeneous specification. On the left-hand side, we have something coming from a description logic. On the right-hand side, we have something coming from a particular spatial calculus. So the kind of uh, formal mechanisms that we've been considering allow us to bring these different heterogeneous specifications together so we can maintain the positive representational and uh, um, expressive uh, capabilities of each of the components without requiring them to become over complex. So then I think we can go straight ahead actually to slide number 64. So we could jump over 63 because 63 just shows us that this gets more and more complex. So we really need to get this under control. Go to, let's have a look at 63. 63 is just showing if we have something like drive left to the box in the front, we start combining these different alignments, which means that it becomes rather difficult unless we have this formally under control to be able to reason about what actually is being meant, which gets quite important because if we want our robot or our wheelchair or other assistive device not to do something rather curious, we should be able to interpret what its users actually mean by that. 
So the next slide is then the final slide, which brings us to a close. Our conclusions and our ongoing and future directions, we consider that dealing with information flexibly is going to require ontological treatments that are contentful, and that means that they are axiomatized in a relatively deep way, or as deep as is required by the particular information that they uh, are, are intended to capture. Axiomized ontologies give us a way of doing this, but structured ontological specifications with well-specified possibilities for relating between them are then equally essential, if not more essential, because this allows us to maintain each module in its own terms and only as, allow it to become as complex as necessary. Approaching things in this way with a general approach to alignment of various shapes, as we've seen in the characterization so far, offers us a structured path towards interoperability between these rather different heterogeneous components. Heterogeneous both in terms of content and in terms of the formal representations used. We are now moving to extend this towards other domains and some project, a project which is just starting will be looking at rather uh, more varied collection of, of domains which uh, uh, we hope to report on as soon as possible. But all of these will then be relying upon the rather general foundations for relating ontologies that we've been describing today. So I will thank you there and uh, look forward to any of your questions which we will deal with as a team. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Bateman, uh, uh, Till, uh, Joanna and Oliver. And uh, we come to the segment uh, when, uh, during which we will open to uh, questions and uh, remarks from all the participants. Uh, let me repeat the process again. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, please press 1 1 on your keypad now. Uh, then we would be able to uh, line up the, uh, the people in order and then uh, we will go through them one by one. So far, I've got one hand from someone. Uh, in the 908 area code, two hands, one another from 311, and then I have a bunch of questions that uh, Ravi Sharma has typed in uh, during the session as well. Uh, so uh, why don't we start with the uh, person from 908, uh, if you do a star three, uh, in Pat yeah, hi. Sure, we can hear you. Okay, this is Pat Cassidy, and uh, first of all, hi, congratulations on your heroic effort to bring order <laughs> to the chaos. <laughs> and um, I'm uh, relevant to the slide 33 where you depicted um, uh, John Soa's, or an adaptation of John Soa's lattice of theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see in, in the uh, the first layer below T. Um, okay, you bring that up. Bring that up. Okay. Uh, in the first layer below T, there are a number of modules which appear to be completely isolated. And my 
experience and intuition is that that's not not likely to happen. That they'll be that isolated. Now I know you you do have formalisms which deal with the question of not uh, incomplete isolation of the uh, fundamental modules. But the question I have is below T and before you get to a lot of uh, reusable modules. Are you discounting the possibility completely that there might be some common set of fundamental elements which are so widely used that they should be part of every module? Are you discounting anything between T and all those isolated aqua modules? That would be for Dr. Vapen. <laughs> Great, thanks. I was just going to throw it to somebody else. Um, discount. I'd say it's an unnecessarily strong assumption. I guess that's where it comes out. If one finds such a thing, then fine. It would not disturb anything in the model. But if we think back to the current, we don't have to think back very far since they're going on now. Since the discussions of the relatability of 3D and 4D views and all of these things, um, it seems an unnecessarily strong requirement from our perspective to enforce upon the account that we find these common things which are reused everywhere. We're quite happy, or I am quite happy, with having different alternative perspectives which can be related by uh, a theory morphism or another alignment and say these are really alternatives. Both describe the world. Both have um, things in their favor. For example, we might have like the snap and spam view as well, seen in this, in this light. And since we believe that we have the formal mechanisms for dealing with this, then we would prefer to go that way because it seems to be, uh, at present, something which is more justifiable. How's that? Well, I do wish you the best of luck. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Thank you. My, my observation has been that when people want to communicate or formal modules want to communicate, it really helps to have something in common to start with. But <laughs> good luck. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Pat. And uh, let's see. The other hand we have is the person from 313. If you would unmute yourself. Uh, and yes. Uh, Hello, um, Peter, this is Ravi. Yes. If you speak up a little, uh, that will be helpful. And I will bring up your questions that you had already typed out uh, during exactly. the session. Yes, thank you. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes. I can hear you. I yeah, keep, hear you. keep up that, that level, please. Yes, please. Uh, Professor Beckman, uh, this is uh, about... Uh, one thing I didn't understand is what you meant by embodied systems. A bullet system would be any system that is interacting, acting in the world on the basis of its immediate sensory input from the world. Nothing much more was meant from that. It really has, it has perceptual input. If we can take that further, there are some um, research groups which we work together which take it further where there is feedback from it's the device's perception of themselves, which really moves a step nearer, something which is a more stronger embodied. But here it was meant really anything which is uh, interacting or acting in the world on the basis of its perceptions. So robots would be next uh, level higher, which was the next category in that slide. 
The which would be? Sorry, I didn't quite get the... The robots. The robots. The robots. Yes, yes. So all of our robots are, are running around in our environments and getting perceptive feeding back. Some of them are also monitoring what they themselves are doing. For example, how their wheels are moving or how their legs are moving. And there, there I think there's this continuum to work between something which is rather trivially and un- embodied and something which is more embodied in some of the deeper senses which are being discussed nowadays. Fine. Uh, we move on to next. I have several questions, so I want to go through very quickly some of them. <laughs> I see the long list some here. Of them yeah. you can, some, some of them you can kindly tell me when to take them offline, or you can kindly respond if you have a few minutes later, not okay. necessarily now. But okay. I'm hoping there would be some that would be of general interest here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do one of those diagrams on a slide which was oval in shape, showing various sources of knowledge, yeah. would you call that connection as a context setting or a context uh, baseline? Uh, when you start awareness of a ontologically or cognitively aware system? I think if we start... Yes. I'll say, to, to make it quick, I'll say yes. Um, and okay. there we can get into what we mean by context at some other stage. But yes, it provides context in many senses. It provides the community which has the context of deciding what is important, how things are going to be re- represented. So if you like, yes. Well, uh, I have only two things to play with. One is context and concept. And then we get into higher level of constructs called theories and axioms. So I was thinking of staying pedestrian and saying, this is the background where I'm coming from. Now I am painting a scenario and that's where we begin our uh, tool usage, communication or transliteration among ontologies or interoperability. Yes. So you need something called pre-definition and that I don't know why people in the community object when we call it a context. I don't object. It's just a very um, widely used term in many different ways. As long as we agree ourselves which particular ontological modules we're drawing on to define our notion of context, that's fine. One observation was that whatever concepts you define today in your examples are well well rooted in... um, GIS and GPS technologies. So in order for us to converge uh, to interoperable uh, graphs and visuals and regions, uh, we should as far as possible try to adopt those so that we can move more on cognitive concepts, more, more energy can be spent on those rather than on redefining graphs. Exactly, exactly. That's why we would say something like we would reuse a graph ontology. Why would you redefine graphs? Graphs are a well-understood structure. When we go over to, for example, the spatial calculi, which are trying to uh, represent qualitative views of space, then we're much closer to cognitive classifications. So bringing these together in flexible ways is very important, it's essential. It won't be done in a simple way since there isn't a simple relationship between the conceptualization that people employ and the rather 
simple categorizations which one would have dir- more directly coming out of the of the GIST data, for example. So this interpretative leap from a data representation and something which is cognitively appropriate or even communicatively appropriate that you can use for interfacing with the GIST system, that's a complex issue. And we think exactly the kind of mechanisms, the flexibility of mechanisms we describe today are going to be essential for that. I, I especially I didn't get to write, but I like the the very end of the presentation where the two two areas are combined. I mean, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. spatial uh, calculi and the textual understandings. Yes, yes, yes. This yes. is a good beginning, but there are other senses like voice, like emphasis, and many other senses as yes. we enrich our. Ontological yes. understanding. Yes. That's in fact one of the major uh, in directions in the new project that we're starting. There'll be a, a much broader range of sensors coming in, not just GIST sensors, but household sensors, and they'll be considering how we can use flexible ontological relationships to uh, have interaction between rather diverse components. We think that's an exciting area, but we'll have lots of, uh, of new challenges there. One of the aspects to keep there in mind is suppose one sticks to voice, phenomes, phonemes, and voice recognition, DSP kind of algorithms. One yes. can probably interculturally parse much more effectively than through a formal language many times in carrying the concepts. Uh, I don't think... Uh, uh, a conceptual representation without a formal specification I don't think we have a semantics to be communicating about so uh, that's my natural language processing uh, background coming in when we do our interpretation of, of input we do spoken language input as well it is analyzed up to a formal representation drawn from our ontologies only then can we relate it to the information in sensors and the information in our plans doing this across cultures of course very interesting the next question was German Sanskrit question, if you have looked at that. I, I deliberately did not look at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I will not, uh, I will not we, say anything about it. We would take it offline then sometime? Uh, if, if you, you insist. Think, uh, what, what I was saying is each, each uh, theory is consistent and logical. When you translate from one to the other, you lose the logic because your ability to morph them is not very robust. I think uh, Till could tell you the total knowledge. With I think it. Till could tell you much more about how that works. And when you're moving from theories to theories, we're not dealing with something fuzzy and wishy-washy. This is quite a precise relationship. And in certain circumstances, you will lose certain things. Other circumstances, you won't. And we begin to know how exactly when and where or which of those situations will apply. So this is not something which one has to remain clear about. Yeah, exactly. So you have control whether you really project something out. That is, you deliberately, deliberately, for example, project from first order logic to description logic. There, of course, you lose something or whether you don't uh, lose something by just transferring to a a different logical context, as you have seen in Oliver's example, 
there actually the mediating logic is first order logic, so nothing is lost, but it's more general purpose logic where everything is integrated. So it, this clearly depends on the scenario at hand. Okay. Um, one last one. Um, um, on the concept of event horizons, someone narrating a story in form of a drama now, but it refers to a story being reenacted from past uh, story or life or past happening at some other event horizon. How do these concepts get taken into ontology? Multiple time horizons. They are in, you're in, from my perspective, you're in series of narrative, and you're in, in series of semantics, and you're in series of discourse and text. And that's an entire different ballpark, which I think uh, uh, relates to ontology in various ways, and in many cases doesn't relate particularly to ontology. So I would uh, certainly suggest taking that one offline. Uh, it opens up areas which um, one needs to have a considerable knowledge about. You start talking about something being told in different situations. We're in a linguistic area. I can fairly say, Peter, I have taken more than my share of time. <laughs> Professor, it's been great, and uh, I'm also happy to see other colleagues from Ontology Forum being logged in and uh, John Sova being referred in your talk and so on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rafi. Uh, one last call. Uh, if anyone has uh, questions, uh, please press a 1-1 one, one now uh, so that we uh, could sort of uh, know that you want to make a comment. We are getting close to uh, closure time, uh, but I actually have a couple of uh, questions for uh, Professor Bateman and your colleagues. Uh, I mean, the, uh, again, I mean, with a wonderful uh, presentation, uh, then can we, uh, based on the castle and, and the, uh, uh, all the uh, tools and, and theories and, and, and approaches you have taken, do you think you can fully represent context uh, now, I mean, in, in <laughs> normal sense of the word um, again we come back there to the notion of what exactly do we want to consider as context if we consider context as a formalization of something which is relevant for a particular set of um, discriminations or characterizations the formal in there will has already answered the question yes if we extend context out endlessly in a way which is more difficult to formalize, then, again, I um, wouldn't quite be sure what we're talking about. So for real applications or real ontology development where the notion of context comes in, possibly, probably. But again, I'm wary of the word context because I know how this is used in several different disciplines. Okay. Fair answer. Uh, Maybe I mean since I mean, from from the perspective of ontolog, I mean where we are trying to sort of advance the field of ontology and ontological engineering and advocate their uh, 
adoption into the mainstream and yeah. adoption in international standards. Uh, obviously, there's a, 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 a good sort of uh, incentive for and hope that maybe common logic, which made it to ISO status, can get some sort of uh, boost from all researchers uh, yeah. all around. So mm-hmm. do, do you think, I mean, the translation into common logic uh, could be uh, worked on sometime soon from your group? Because, I mean, that would definitely be very useful. And the next question is, would uh, ICHO, IKL be enough, uh, or would you still need further extensions to IKL to fully represent uh, the things that you have been talking about? Yeah. Jill, do you want to say something? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so, um, I, I think either Common Logic or IKL are, are uh, sufficient to uh, represent everything. Uh, I think the, the aspect of our talk was um, basically on the structuring. Uh, so, recall all these diagrams. And I think that this is not uh, covered by Common uh, Logic currently. So, Common Logic is a is a standard for first order logic and some kind of uh, extensions like these uh, arbitrary length lists and so on. Um, but typically you have uh, different sources of information and, and you have different um, uh, notations and so on. And of course this all can be translated to common logic, uh, but sometimes you don't want to do so because you have a specialized tool that uh, can cope with a particular description logic and you want to leave it uh, there and only for interface reasons you want to uh, translate everything to common logic. But yes, of course, we could uh, put also common logic in our approach in in this heterogeneous tool set uh, that we didn't do so. It's more a a matter of of, uh, perhaps tradition and resources uh, and not a matter of that we have different concepts there. So you, you could imagine in our framework we saw many specifications and they begin with the word spec and they end with the word end and there's something in the middle. One could well imagine the situation where you'd be putting some common logic in the middle. But from our perspective, it is even more important that the structuring of the entire thing is available and something which we can use for, uh, for, for, sharing, out the, for sharing out the work that is done. And then if some particular account doesn't want to make full use of a full common logic, then from our perspective, that's also fine. They might be using a much more restricted representation. And then there will be different definitions relating the specifications in common logic and the specifications which are in in a different specification or different language or different logic. But we are very open to including common logic, of course. Uh, uh, If anybody out there wants to help us do it, that would be even better. Let's hope uh, that might happen soon. I mean, the, the common logic people uh, don't call, don't even call themselves a language as much as uh, it, it hopes that. I mean, all the first order languages could be dialects uh, of common logic. I, I hope. I mean, we could uh, have sort of compatible representations uh, in in all the good works that, that are out there. Yeah, I think the, 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 the specifications themselves will be compatible. It's more this issue of how we structure them into larger collections of views. This structuring is where we think is, is really an essential part of, uh, will be and uh, become and remain an essential part of ontological engineering. 
structuring so that we can reuse and extend. Okay, I see one more hand uh, out there. A uh, person from 908 said Pat again. Yeah, hi, Peter. This is, this is Pat Cassidy again with a follow-up on a previous question I had. Um, uh, given that you're going to have a number of um, modules at, at your top level, I, I presume that uh, some of them will have concepts, uh, relations that uh, are, in fact, pretty much identical in others. Uh, and the question then is that uh, do you intend to have mappings among these top-level modules as, as part of the, um, the mechanism for combining them when, uh, when, when you want to, to use them in combination? In general, of course, if you can prove that there are certain areas of these modules which are, are saying the same thing in, in different different ways, then one would certainly want to have these connections as part of one's overall specification, part of one's knowledge about the ontology. I think maintaining and, and, and growing a library of the different kinds of alignments between different modules, the different kinds of relations between perspectives, will become an increasingly important part of ontological engineering so that you can then organize these mappings and alignments and build on them and extend them and treat these as parts of uh, a logical specification as well. So that if you have a new specification or a new ontology which comes in, it may build on alignments which have already been created so you don't end up doing all the work from scratch. But importantly, then you'll be able to prove this and, and maintain this formally. So, uh, on that last question, let us take the opportunity to thank uh, Professor Bateman and your team, uh, Till Mosul-Sakowski, Oliver Kutz, and Joanna Hoyce, one more time uh, on behalf of the Ontolog Forum, and thank you very, very much for uh, sharing your uh, work with us. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thanks for the invitation. It was uh, great to be here, wherever we collectively are. Yes, and, 